Warmer, sunnier days are finally arriving. As outside is calling, Factor is here to make sure that however busy you get, your meals are taken care of, giving you all the energy and time to enjoy that weather. Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So, no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and, oh yes, blackened salmon. Don't mind if I do. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine and give yourself time to focus on what makes you happy. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash danjones50 and use code danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code danjones50 at factormeals.com slash danjones50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Before we start, just a quick warning that this episode contains descriptions of violence or sexual content that may not be suitable for all listeners. It's dark. It's smoky. And it's very, very hot. High above the plains of Galilee, in what's now Israel, a crusader army is camped for the night. They've picked the twin peaks of a volcano known as the Horns of Hattin to make their camp. The volcano is long extinct, but around them the night is on fire. Thick black clouds billow around the soldiers, making them choke and gasp for clean air. And not far off, just beyond the crackling fires, they can hear their enemies shouting threats of hellfire and torment. The army is led by King Guy of Jerusalem, who has pulled together around 20,000 men from the Crusader states of the East. He has a thousand-odd regular knights, hundreds of elite troops like the Knights Templar, and maybe 10,000 ordinary foot soldiers. It's one of the biggest Crusader armies ever assembled in the Holy Land. And as well as sheer numbers, they've enlisted God's backing too. They've brought along the holiest relic in all of Christendom, a big chunk of the true cross on which Christ died. But they may have needed a bigger chunk. The army has only been in the field for a few days, but they're already in big trouble. Because as they pitch camp for the night on July 3rd, 1187, they find themselves surrounded. The enemy this army has been brought together to face is Saladin, the Sultan of Egypt and Syria, who's made it his personal mission to wipe the Crusader states off the map. Saladin comes with a vast army of his own, perhaps 30,000 strong, and a fierce reputation. One Muslim poet of the age says his virtues are over the stars, and that as soon as his banners are unfurled, those of the enemy fold in defeat. He's in the mood to show the Crusaders just what that looks like in practice. Saladin knows that King Guy is an inexperienced leader, so he's laid a simple trap. He's attacked a city called Tiberius, making a big show of it, in the hope that Guy will march his army across the desert to try and rescue the Christians inside. Guy has taken the bait, 
He's led his army towards Saladin's through hot, arid country with very few sources of water. Meanwhile, Saladin has placed troops in such a way that the few existing water sources are cut off as Guy's forces approach. So when night falls on July the 3rd, at the Horns of Hattin, the Crusader troops are not far from the city, but they're completely out of water. And in the summer heat, the men are already starting to get weak and desperate through their unbearable thirst. That's when Saladin springs his trap. He quickly moves his own men from Tiberius and gets them to fan out around the Crusaders' camp, setting fire to the tinder-dry grassland. Soon, the air is thick with blinding, acrid smoke, and the fires only add to the parching heat. Delighting in the Crusaders' discomfort, Saladin's troops jeer and yell at them. They warn that this is a taste of the hell that awaits the Crusaders when they die the next day that this is the fate they deserve, that they're doomed, not just now, but for eternity. King Guy and his men cough and splutter and try to ignore the catcalls, but they know that the next morning will be make or break, not only for them, but for the survival of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And it'll change the destiny of the whole Christian world. I'm Dan Jones, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a dynasty to die for. Episode 21, Crisis in the East. At the end of last episode, we were quite literally in bed with Philip Augustus, King of France, and his new BFF, Richard the Lionheart. It looked like the fate of the Plantagenet Empire hung in the balance. So why are we now swerving away from Western Europe and heading back over to the Kingdom of Jerusalem? Well, as I've hinted at a couple of times in this series, there are tight links between the Crusader states in the East and the rich Christian kingdoms of the West. First, they're connected by family. For example, King Guy rules Jerusalem with his wife, Queen Sibylla. She's our Henry II's first cousin. And that's just one of the most famous examples. Thousands more noble and knightly families also have relatives over in the East, who went there to fight or pray at the holy sites and ended up staying. Then they're connected economically. There's a constant flow of trade and ready cash between West and East. Organisations like the Templars are forever tapping people up for donations to the Crusader cause. They do great business. And it's not just kings and nobles who help out. The records show that huge numbers of ordinary people eagerly buy into it too even amending their wills to leave their tiny savings to the fight. Above all, they're connected spiritually. People really believe that what's been going on in the East since the First Crusade reconquered Jerusalem is what God wants. 
they believe the teachings of their church, that the Holy Lands must be held by Christians. So news from the Crusader states is a matter of serious public interest in England and France. And every now and then, the situation blows up. Because roughly once a generation, the people of the Crusader states will find themselves in such peril that their only option is to appeal to their families and friends in the West for a full-scale bailout. Money, military assistance, the works. It doesn't happen often, but it happens. In fact, one famous member of the Plantagenet family has been there, done that and got the t-shirt. Eleanor of Aquitaine. Cast your mind back to the very start of this series. We met Eleanor in episode 1, legging it from the court of her ex-husband, King Louis VII of France. Their marriage had fallen to bits, and in the aftermath of their divorce, she was fleeing to her own duchy. Well, one of the major low points in Eleanor's marriage to Louis had come in the 1140s, when the two of them had taken part in what we today call the Second Crusade. Back then, the menace to the Crusader states didn't come from Saladin. He was barely seven years old. The threat was from a bloke called Imad al-Din Zengi, or just Zengi for short. Zengi was a vicious, violent drunkard, but a supremely gifted warrior. In the early 1140s, he'd conquered the smallest of the Christian states set up by the First Crusade, the county of Edessa in Syria. The shock of losing Edessa was enough to prompt a massive military expedition from the West. Like all Crusades, it was sanctioned by the Pope, who thundered that losing Edessa was proof that the Christian world was soft and sinful and needed to take a long, hard look at itself. Louis VII and the German Emperor Conrad III took up the call and marched east with tens of thousands of troops. They truly believed that the fate of the Christian world depended on them and that God would reward them by wiping out their sins and giving them a beat-the-cues pass into heaven. They were willing to bet their lives on it. Now, as it turned out, the Second Crusade was a complete fiasco. Like a lot of Louis's ideas, it was disorganised and very badly planned. The French king was nearly captured when his army got ambushed in Asia Minor. When they eventually got to the Holy Land, Louis was broke and half his troops were sick. Zengi was already dead. He'd been murdered by one of his own slaves. But he'd been succeeded by his even more brilliant son, Nur al-Din. Edessa was beyond saving. The Crusaders made a desperate attempt to conquer the great city of Damascus, but botched it. Everyone eventually fell out, and they all went home in a huff. And then, to add salt to Louis's wounds, there were those rumours going around that Eleanor had had an affair with her uncle while they were there. So, yeah, the Second Crusade was not much to write home about, but it shows you what lengths people in the West were prepared to go to, if it looked like their kin in the East were facing existential peril. And by the 1180s, when Saladin is on the march, 
there's a sense that it might not be too long before yet another crusade will have to be attempted. No matter how badly things went last time, if King Guy can't keep Saladin at bay on his own, then the Western powers will have to step in and sort things out. All of which brings us back to where we began this episode. On the Horns of Hattin, on the night of the 3rd of July 1187. King Guy and his army, hot, thirsty and choking on smoke, about to face their moment of reckoning with Saladin. The stakes are as high as it gets. History is hanging in the balance. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Indeed.com slash Dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's full of people celebrating their successes, but if the Plantagenets have taught us anything, it's that failing is much more interesting. So that's why I'm certain you're going to love the podcast How to Fail. The very brilliant Elizabeth Day invites guests on to talk about three of their biggest failures and what they've taught them about life. It's a great way to hear a new side to people you may think you know. Guests include Bernie Sanders, Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Stanley Tucci. Give it a try. Find How to Fail wherever you get your podcasts. The fighting at Hattin begins as dawn breaks on July the 4th. Morale among the Crusader army is at rock bottom before it even begins. And not just because they spent the night surrounded by thick smoke and taunts about eternal damnation. The day before, some knights in King Guy's army spotted an eagle soaring above them. The eagle was holding seven crossbow bolts in its talons, which they think represented the seven deadly sins. Some of them swear the eagle was screaming, Woe to you, O Jerusalem! Now, maybe a clairvoyant bird was flying past at that precise moment. Who knows? My bet is that it's probably a hallucination brought on by extreme dehydration. But, hallucination or not, the prediction appears to come true almost as soon as the fighting starts. At first, Saladin hangs back. His men allow the Crusaders to march further on, towards Tiberias, via some freshwater springs, where they hope they might be able to get water. But in reality, he's just letting them get to his preferred spot for cutting them down. Right between the two peaks of the Horns of Hattin. He keeps the bushfires burning, 
so that the smoke continues to choke and blind the thirsty crusaders. Then, when he reckons they're at their most weak and vulnerable, he gives the orders for his archers to draw their bows and start shooting. Straight away, it's chaos. It's hard enough to defend against an arrow storm at the best of times, but with such poor visibility, death rains down on the Crusaders from all angles. Horses and lightly armoured infantry fall first, so a panicking King Guy rallies his surviving knights to form up and charge at Saladin's lines. They do, but the manoeuvre is hampered by all the confusion as well as dissent among some of the army's leading nobles. It proves impossible to mount a decisive counterattack. One group of high-ranking knights break through the enemy lines with their charge, but then they find themselves cut off from the rest of the army. Faced with what looks like certain death, the knights decide to leg it and flee the battlefield. The simple fact is, that the Crusaders are outnumbered and outclassed. But the armies are both huge, so the fighting isn't over quickly. The battle goes on for around eight hours, even though it's such a one-sided affair. Saladin watches the battle from a distance, alongside one of his sons. He's nervous throughout, though he later describes how finely his men fought. He says... The eyes of our spears were directed at their hearts. Rivers of swords sought out their livers. The horses' hooves massed dust clouds for them. Showers of arrows shooting out sparks were sent down on them. It's a hell of a sight. And in the end, it comes down to a final stand. King Guy and some of his toughest knights have created a sort of compound by pitching their big field tents to try and block the path of Saladin's cavalry. They're holding out a round guy's personal tent, which is made from bright red fabric. They're defending the relic of the true cross. They put up a valiant effort, but eventually sheer weight of numbers tells. They're surrounded and overwhelmed. Guy's red tent is symbolically cut down. The king and his companions aren't butchered on the spot. Like many of the other knights, they're rounded up and taken prisoner. Some, like the Templars in the group, are later ritually beheaded. They're considered too dangerous to release. Some, like Guy, are kept for massive ransoms. The True Cross is confiscated and taken to Saladin, who declares that he's going to keep it. I guess he reckons it'll look nice on his mantelpiece. In the space of a single day, the biggest crusader army in a generation has been crushed. The greatest holy relic in the Christian world has been captured. The king of Jerusalem has been taken prisoner. And there's barely anyone left behind to defend the Holy Land. Saladin celebrates his victory, but doesn't rest on his laurels. He lets his army recover briefly, then takes them down to besiege Jerusalem itself. 
In late September 1187, the city surrenders, and a few days later, Saladin ceremonially marches in. Crosses in the city are taken down and ritually beaten and kicked in the street. Mosques and Friday prayers are restored. The work of the First Crusade has finally been undone, and word of Jerusalem's fall races around the Christian world. It's so shocking that the Pope of the day, Urban III, falls down dead when he hears the news. His successor immediately rushes out a papal bull, stating that it's now the duty of everyone who calls himself a Christian to drop whatever they're doing and go and join the struggle against Saladin and the defence of whatever's left of the Crusader states. A once-in-a-generation moment has come around again. And all eyes are on the most powerful men in Western Europe to see how they'll react. That includes Philip Augustus, the ambitious young king of France. It includes his new bestie, Richard the Lionheart. And of course, it includes our old friend Henry II, who turned down the opportunity to take the crown of Jerusalem just two years previously. So, what will it be now? Will Henry again choose the good of his Plantagenet empire or the glory of Christendom and its holiest city. To find out, join me next time on This Is History. As always, if you're craving more Plantagenet drama, I've got you covered. Join me on This Is History Plus, where every Thursday I release an extra episode revealing the weird details, fun facts and fascinating subplots we don't have time for in the main story. And on top of that, as a subscriber you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.